special edition of Torah Deep Dive. And we, this is not on this week's Parsha. Usually we do it on the Parsha, on the weekly Torah portion. And sometimes, especially when it's around a holiday, and uh, holidays always get preferential treatment, right? Uh, to focus specifically on a, on a special holiday coming up, we want to focus on that. So for example, let me close my ringer here. Um, let's close this here. Okay. Next week's class can be about Hanukkah, for example, right? Next week, Friday, we're going to be celebrating the very first day of Hanukkah. And Friday night is the second late of Hanukkah. So we'll be talking about Hanukkah, not about the weekly Torah portion. Um, and we as well have a special holiday, a little bit less known, but no less important, that is coming up tonight and tomorrow, as well as Sunday. It is not a holiday that has any specific... Um, you know, change of schedules, like longer prayers. But it's the 19th day of the Hebrew calendar, the 19th of Kislev. And this is known in the world of Chabad as the new year for Hasidus, the new year of the Hasidic movement. And um, there's a very interesting history to this, of what this day is all about, why it's a day of celebration. But this is the day, the annual year, that from when there was the revelation of the teachings of Hasidus, about 250 years ago, and from when there was the, uh, uh, the, the, the study of Hasidus became open to the world, to the masses, to the, to the larger Jewish community, we celebrate that on this day. I'm going to plug in my computer here because I see it's starting to go out of battery. Just give me a quick moment, we'll plug it in, and then we will continue the class. All right, just take just a quick second. All right, that was nice and quick. Okay. Here's the story. What is the new year for the Hasidic movement? There's a history to it, and then there's what the history means. The history is, it was in the late 1700s. The Hasidic teachings and the Hasidic way of life, the inspiration of Hasidus, the guiding principles of Hasidus, was a part of Torah, a timeless part of our Jewish traditions. But it was part of the deeper elements of the Torah that were kept hidden throughout the ages, along with the Kabbalah, with the deeper esoteric, mystical teachings of the Torah. And um, in this way, Hasidus was something of a hidden and out-of-reach area of Judaism. In the early 1700s, a man came around. His name was Rabbi Yisrael, the Baal Shem Tov. And he was the one who was given the charter from heaven to bring the teachings of Hasidus to the masses. Hasidus is the very soul of the Torah, it's the soul of Judaism. And for whatever reason, it was deemed uh, um, not appropriate to make it available to the masses. Uh, such deep, sublime teachings and uh, 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 such sensitive ideas, such powerful ideas, such potent ideas. But the Baal Shem Tov came around and he's the one who began the Hasidic revolution. 
to bring these teachings of Hasidus to the masses and to really change the Jewish world with the teachings and the inspiration of Hasidus. The Baal Shem Tov was the person who began this revolution. After him came his student, his successor, who was known as the Magid of Mezrich. Magid means a teacher or a preacher. The teacher of Mezrich, the Magid of Mezrich, his name was Rabbi Dovber of Mezrich. And then his student, the third generation, was Rabbi Schneir Zalman, the Alter Rebbe, who is the founder of Chabad. This is the very first one who begins the uh, Chabad brand of Hasidus, if you want to put it that way, specifically Chabad. And the Alter Rebbe was uh, one of the most influential and important people in the story, in the development of Hasidus. Because the Yalta Rebbe took the ideas of Hasidus and for the first time made them approachable by every single Jew via the mind. Which means, before the Yalta Rebbe, before Rabbi Shneir Zalman, Rabbi Shneir Zalman is in the late 1700s, the second half of the 1700s. Before the Yalta Rebbe, the inspiration of Hasidus was taught. And there were the students of Hasidus, but still it was out of reach. A regular person couldn't study and approach and assimilate within themselves the studies of Hasidus. Rabbi Schneir Zaman was given the specific charter by his teacher to start the process of making the power, the energy, the fire of the deepest parts of Torah accessible through the mind, through teachings. Give us the tools, give a Jew the tools that if he only studies he can access this. And the Altarbe did that. He authored the Tanya, which was the very, very first uh, methodical work of the teachings of Hasidus to give the Jewish people a taste of learning such deep ideas and to inspire themselves and to access a part of the Torah that until then was totally out of reach. It was revolutionary. Never before in history was there ever a book, ever a book like that. And he began the movement. It was a whole movement. It changed... The status quo. It was a revolution. And a very big part of Hasidus was bringing back the fire, the inspiration, and the sense of closeness with God. And in that way, it challenged the status quo. Let's just put it that way. Hasidus was something that was very exciting and also, like all revolutions, considered somewhat of a threat. What is going on? <laughs> this big movement coming and changing things. And part of the story of the early generations of the Hasidic movement was opposition. And opposition from within the Jewish world. And opposition from within, I mean, the Orthodox, the Torah Jewish world. Great rabbis themselves were a little bit alarmed by what Hasidus was accomplishing. Hasidus seemed to be challenging uh, the entire premise of how Jewish life was running until then. The notions, uh, the systems, the structures. Simply, you know, how Judaism was recognized and practiced, Hasidus was coming and saying, no, not, you know, there's, we have something new to teach you. We have something, we have something new to do here. And a debate occurred amongst the leaders of the Hasidic movement. Um, and many well-meaning Jews and well-meaning rabbis, if Hasidus is a healthy, valid 
progression within the story of Jewish tradition? Or is it, in fact, problematic? Is, is Hasidus something which is coming in and chipping away at the very ethos, at the very essence of what Torah Judaism is? Or is Hasidus valid? And this was a debate that lasted for some time um, until Hasidus was recognized for what it was, the power of what Hasidus was, uh, universally and across the Jewish world. But there, there was that time of friction within the Jewish world. And part of what happened was, in the year 1798, um, a group of rabble-rousers, a group of Jews who were not from the Hasidic community, uh, wanted to take out this great rabbi, this great revolutionist, Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi, the Alta Rebbe. So they slandered him to the Tsarist government. And the Alta Rebbe was uh, arrested and imprisoned for 53 days um, where he was strongly interrogated to see if the allegations made against him were true or false. And uh, after 53 days, they released him. He was exonerated, of uh, vindicated of all charges. And that is the story. The Yalta Rebbe knew a little bit. I just want to give you a little bit of the history, the background over here before we do some reading. The Yalta Rebbe knew what the allegations were that were uh, leveled against him because he was interrogated about them when he was imprisoned. Very interesting. After the fall of communism, Chabad was able to access... Uh, the archives of of Russia, both during communism and pre-communism, pre-the Bolshevik Revolution in the times of the Tsars. And we were able to access all the documents. We have the original document that some Jew sent in to the, to the government to slander against uh, Rabbi Schneer Zalman. So we know exactly what the nature of the allegations were, and the Alter Rebbe had to go through many, many hours of interrogation, as well as a, a lot of philosophical and theological um, interrogation. And I want to share with you what the three primary uh, accusations, what they were that were leveled against the Alta Rebbe. The first allegation was that Hasidus is chipping away at the value of Torah study and the value and the honor and the prestige that we need to give to Torah scholars. That was the first allegation. Now, why was that? Right, this was number one. Hasidus is hurting Torah study and hurting the respect that Torah scholars deserve. The basic, there's a little bit of history that we need to learn over here of what uh, European Jewry looked like up until the mid-1700s. Number one, the art of prayer was pretty much lost. The idea of sitting and praying and connecting to God, heart to heart, that became a lost art. And a lot of value was placed, a lot of emphasis was placed on Torah study. Study Torah. And it was even done with a little bit of a arrogance to be a great Torah scholar, to be a genius, to master the art of Torah, to know a lot of Talmud. And... This was part of what was happening in the Jewish world that time. There was a lack of appreciation for prayer. Spend time with prayer, meditation, contemplation, to do internal work of bonding with God. This was all but lost. 
when Hasidus came and when the Baal Shem Tov came, this was one of the very, very big areas uh, that was re-emphasized. Prayer. Connect with God. Spend time praying. Don't just pray quickly so they could get as quickly as possible to the, tar- to the study hall. No. Prayer is in and of itself a goal, a value, important, special. And Hasidus said, no, we have to focus a lot on prayer as well. And this was also very, very comforting for Jews who were less knowledgeable. There were many, many Jews. Most Jews then were considered illiterate. Education was, uh, was a privilege. Most Jews were not educated well. And most Jews felt out of touch with God because they couldn't study. This was how it worked in Europe. You look in the history in the 1600s, 1700s. If a Jew even knew how to read Hebrew properly itself was a, was a, was a high level. And we're talking about religious Jews. They would pray. They were very sincere. But because culturally Torah study was everything, therefore these Jews felt very alienated and they felt very distant from God. And the Baal Shem Tov said, no, God wants the heart. God wants to connect with you. And you could connect to God simply by praying. And don't worry if you're not that smart. <laughs> but then all the detractors of Chesedes came and said, they had this allegation. You are chipping away at traditional Judaism. You are undermining the power of Torah study. And this is also the idea that Chesedes is, is chipping away at the honor of Torah scholars. And this again, it touches all back into the same thing. Back in those days, there was a very strong... Um, a split, how do you call it, when there's a, a, a divide between the classes, right? There were the Jews who, were, who knew how to study, the literate Jews, the scholarly Jews, and they were considered a higher class of Jews. And the majority of Jews couldn't study. And these two groups of Jews, uh, uh, there was a very big divide. The scholars would look down at the simple Jews. There were even different synagogues. Can you imagine that? There was a synagogue for the scholars, and there's a separate synagogue for all the simple Jews, for all the lowlifes, you know, all the riffraff Jews. Oh, you, you know, you, you don't know how to study, you could go there. And, and Hasidus wanted to totally break down that barrier and show how every single Jew could connect to God. And um, sincerity is more important than smarts. And that God is accessible to every single Jew. So the detractors frame that as Hasidus is coming and chipping away at Torah study. They're undermining religion. Now, if you think about it, to, the, to, the, to our modern mind, it doesn't make any sense. Can you imagine if you go file a, a, in the local courthouse a complaint that somebody is chipping away at my religion? You're, the authorities care about that? <laughs> it's a free country. Do whatever you want. But in Tsarist Russia, there was a very strong value of traditional religionism. All religions have to be respected and enforced in their original, uh, um, they were against any form of reformation. And this all ties into also the war between Russia and Napoleon, the French Revolution. We don't want any reforms. We don't want to be progressive. We want the original, you know, they, they, were, they were also against the Protestants. It also goes with that, right? They wanted the original Catholic Church. Um, this was part of the Tsar's shtick. All religions need to stay true to their original form. And anybody who's looking to create a new cult, a new religion, or a new spin-off of a religion, they wanted to squash that. That was something that the Tsarist regime itself 
was personally invested in to not have that happen. And it all tied into the geopolitics of the time as well. So here comes the detractors of Hasidus, and they go and slander to the authorities. The Alter Rebbe is chipping away at traditional Judaism, and the proof is, look, he doesn't value Torah study anymore, and he's, uh, he's devaluing and pulling away at the honor that is due to great Torah scholars, and therefore he has to be uh, prosecuted as a danger to the czarist regime. Okay? That's point number one. <laughs> How does that sound? Point number two was that Rabbi Schneer Zalman is an enemy to the state. Uh, he's guilty of treason because he sends money to Israel. Till today, interesting question. What is the oldest charity servicing the Jews, the needy Jews in Israel? Oh, who, who, who started that model? Right? Could be many of you remember those old uh, blue uh, tin cans, right? For the Jewish National Fund. Supporting Israel. Who, who's the, who started that? Who was the first person really in history to start that model? That Jews in the diaspora, everyone has a box and we send money to Israel. First one was, was Rabbi Schneir Zalman. He started a charity in the late 1700s, in the 1780s. Uh, it was called Kolel Chabad, the Fund of Chabad, to service the Jews in Israel. And the reason was the Jews in Israel were horribly impoverished. They couldn't get jobs. Horrible situation. And the altar made a massive movement. And this was one of the most dearest movements to his heart, that we send money to Israel to support the Jewish communities in Israel. And it's, it's, it's in operation till today. You know, if you look, I actually saw somebody wrote, um, you know, like the Federation here is doing, you know, all the Federations in America are doing massive fundraisings uh, for Israel. Now, Federation of Detroit, for example, they, they don't personally give money in Israel. All the money that's donated in the Detroit-Israel campaign goes to the larger organization, the Federation of North America. Federation of North America, they have a board, and they partner with organizations that service Israel, and they, they distribute the funds to them. So, right, so that's how it works. If you, if you donate to Detroit, Detroit gives it to Federation of North America, Federation of North America gives it to local organizations. If I'm not mistaken, the third top recipient of Federation of North America money is Kolel Chabad. I'm talking about today, 2023. Who's servicing the hundreds of thousands of families from the south and from the north who are displaced? Who's taking care of them? Who's making sure that their kids are able to go to get a dentist appointment? That they have toiletries, they're able to have clothing, uh, warm clothing for the winter. Kol Chabad till today. We're talking about a multi-million dollar organization and was started by the Alta Rebbe. And... Uh, to, to simply be there in support for needy communities and needy Jews in Israel. Now, there's only one problem. <laughs> Israel in the late 1700s was under whose rulership? The Ottoman Empire, the Turks. Russia was at war with the Ottoman Empire. So they framed Rabbi Schneir Zaman's charitable giving, collecting money in Russia, sending it to Israel, as a, tre a treasonous work. You're a spy. 
You're collecting local money and sending it to the enemy? And that was how they libeled against the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe is working for the Turks and he is undermining the integrity of Russia's position by living here and sending our money to support our enemies. That was uh, uh, treason number two. Um, And the third area, which maybe goes back to the first one, was about prayer, which is, again, one of the the third uh, main category of libel that was leveled against the Alter Rebbe was that the Alter Rebbe was um, changing prayer in Judaism. He made a whole new model of praying, the Hasidic model of praying where prayer has a lot more passion, prayer is a lot longer, we spend more time praying, we don't rush through it. The Alter Rebbe even reintroduced a certain changes to the prayer liturgy based on the teachings of Kabbalah, that prayer should be more in line with the teachings of Kabbalah and the teachings of the Arizal. And there even started the phenomenon of Hasidic shuls. There's a regular shul, and then there's, if you want to get the experience of praying with the Hasidic flavor, there's a Hasidic shul. And this was all used again to accuse the Alter Rebbe of creating a new cult, breaking away of Judaism, chipping away at the foundations of Judaism, making new synagogues, changing things, etc. When the Alter Rebbe was arrested in the fall of 1798, he was arrested in a black coach, which was a sign that uh, the arrestee is going to be uh, is going to be executed. If you're arrested in a black coach in Imperial Russia, it meant only one thing: it meant this is a one-way ticket, and you're not coming back home. So you can only imagine the alarm and just how serious this was that the author was being arrested in a black coach. It didn't mean good news. And it really was very scary. The Chassidim did not know, you know, is, is, is the author ever going to survive this at all? It's very, very serious. He's being arrested on, on, on treason. The author ever was, was arrested and he was brought to, it's actually still there in Russia, in St. Petersburg, a fortress that's in the middle of the river in St. Petersburg, uh, a fortress which is not in use anymore, but back then it served as a as a prison, uh, surrounded by water, for high-level prisoners. And the author was uh, was arrested there, was imprisoned there and interrogated there for a few weeks until he was fully, and uh, we actually have now the the, 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 the manuscripts, the, the transcripts, of the interrogations between the interrogators, the ministers, and the Alter Rebbe. And the Alter Rebbe also gave in a written, uh, um, a written deposition where he had to respond to multiple questions and challenges. And all that is published today. Very, very fascinating. Only very recently was all, this, uh, all the archives uh, released. When the Alter Rebbe was, impres- was imprisoned, he said that he got a visit. He got a visit from his predecessors. He got a visit from his teacher, the Magid of Mezrich. And he got his teacher from his teacher's teacher, the Baal Shem Tov. Now, these two people were not alive physically in 1798. But the author said not only their souls, he physically witnessed their presence in his jail cell. 
and uh, they came to visit him in his dark hour. And Rabbi Schneir Zalman says he asked them, what do they want of me? Why is this happening to me? And he was asking spiritually, you know, why, why is God allowing this to happen? And they answered to Rabbi Schneir Zalman, he said, they said that the level, the, uh, the, uh, just the amount of revelation, the amount of work that you are doing in spreading Hasidus is to such a massive degree that there's a challenge. There's a spiritual challenge to such a revelation. Is it appropriate? Is it too much? Is it going too far? You know, you're literally opening up the the uh, treasuries of the king and just letting everybody come and take whatever they want. You know, it's 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 too much. And that is why, in this physical world, it mirrored spiritually what was happening. But they told Rabbi Shneir Zaman, they told the Alter Rebbe. You will be released. And when you are released, that is a sign that spiritually you have been acquitted. Acquitted. Spiritually, on high, you have been vindicated. On high, you now have the green light to go full force and to grow even more and to disseminate the teachings of Hasidus even more. That's what he said. And the real truth is, the Alter Rebbe was the closest student. He was the youngest and closest student of his teacher, the Magid of Mezrich. And many years earlier, when the Magid of Mezrich was about to pass away, his 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 choicest student, Rabbi Shneir Zaman, was, was at his deathbed. And he told him that this is the day that I am passing away. It's a special day for me. And it's also going to be a special day for you. And he already foretold Rabbi Shneir Zaman that there's going to be a challenge to the growth of Hasidus. And you're going to have to suffer through it. But this day is going to be a special day. The day that the Magad of Mezrich passed away was the 19th of Kislev. The day that Rabbi Shneir Zaman was released from prison was the 19th of Kislev. And when Rabbi Shneir Zaman came out, he said that this was not just a, uh, this wasn't just a, a bump in the road. This wasn't, uh, uh, this wasn't just a, a coincidence. This was a spiritual process. Hasidus in its formative years, the green light was still not given from heaven, so to speak, uh, for the energy of Hasidus to be fully released and to be fully shared with the Jewish people. But now his act of physical redemption, which was also a spiritual redemption, gave the full green light for the continuation and for the ultimate revelation of the teachings of Hasidus and therefore, he said, this is not just a personal day for me. It's not just a personal day of my own redemption. It is a day of celebration for all the Jewish people. It's called the Rosh Hashanah, the New Year for Hasidus. And it is a day that we thank God for the gift of Hasidus, the way it changed the Jewish world, the gifts that it gives us personally. And it's a day to recommit ourselves to the growth, to the study of Hasidus, uh, to growing in the ways of Hasidus. And uh, we literally wish one another a happy and healthy sweet new year. It should be a year of growth, a successful year of Hasidus, 
It's a brand new year of Hasidus. And uh, there's, in the Hasidic community, in the Chabad community, there are, there's an idea of daily study, daily cycles of study. So we study the Torah every single day. There's a daily t- portion of the Torah to study. There's also daily Tanya, the book that the author ever wrote, daily Tanya. And the cycle begins and ends on the new year, on 19th of Kislev. So tomorrow is going to be a brand new, uh, the new beginning for the Tanya. That is the background. So it's a very important day. It's a day of celebration. The Rebbe always celebrated this day tremendously. And uh, we as well celebrate this. I want to share with you a little bit, and we don't have that much time, but at least we'll get a little bit in. A very beautiful little... Uh, um, A very beautiful little insight from the Rebbe that he shared about the history, about the story of the 19th of Kislev. So let us begin on page three. We'll do a little bit of reading inside. And um, let's see how much we could do. Okay, here we go. This is, we'll start with source number one. This is the letter that the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneur Zaman, wrote himself upon his release. He said, from the Alter Rebbe's letter, This indeed must be made known, that on the day that God made for us, the 19th of Kislev, which was a Tuesday, the day on which it was good, was said twice in the Torah. I'll explain that to you in a moment. The yard site of our holy teacher, whose soul is in Eden, in Gan Eden, which was the Magad of Mezrich. While I was reading in the book of Tehillim, the book of Psalms, the verse he redeemed my soul in peace. Before beginning the following verse, I emerged in peace by the act of the God of peace. So it was a Tuesday. Every single day of creation, God says, and it was good. God saw what he made, and it was good. Tuesday, God says it was good twice. It's the only day of the week that good was said twice. And because of that, Tuesday is always a very, it's a, it's a favorite day in Jewish tradition. Uh, Tuesday is a lucky day because God said it was good twice. Um, I actually have a good, this Tuesday, I got I have a very important meeting. So it's a good day. Tuesday is good. Okay. And it was on Tuesday when the guards came into the altar of his jail cell and said, you are a free man. And what what was he doing in the altar? He was, he was reciting Psalms, which is what a Jew does when they are in a, time of difficulty you read the Tehillim the Psalms and he was reading the verse which is I believe chapter 56 maybe 50 something he redeemed my soul in peace he's saying those words he redeemed my soul in peace and at that moment the guards tell him you're a free man so look at that he says I'm saying the words Pada v'shalom nafshi you redeem my soul in peace so the Rebbe is going to connect that verse, he redeemed my soul in peace, with the allegations that were leveled against the Alter Rebbe. So let's read now what the Rebbe says. The Alter Rebbe was of course aware of the reason for his imprisonment. After his release, he said that his liberation was associated with the verse, he redeemed my soul with peace. This is a verse in the written Torah, in the book of Psalms. To understand its meaning, we must look into the oral Torah, the Talmud and Tractate Brachot. So what does the what is the meaning within this verse? He redeemed my soul in peace. Let's look at how the Talmud explains this verse. Next 
source two from the Talmud Brachot. What does he redeemed my soul in peace mean? What does that mean? God said, whoever studies Torah, acts charitably, and prays with the congregation, I will consider it as if they have redeemed myself and my children from among the nations. These three cause redemption. Study Torah, charity, and praise with the congregation. That brings redemption to God and it brings redemption to the Jewish people. Says the author, says the Rebbe, look at that. The verse has within it these three elements, Torah study, charity, prayer. And that's exactly the three areas of allegations that were made against the Alter Rebbe, against Torah study, against charity, and against his prayer. So it all ties in. Let's, let's continue reading here on page four. Says the Rebbe, the redemption of the Alter Rebbe is thus connected with three elements. A, engaging in Torah study, meaning he was redeemed, he was vindicated in regards to Torah study, B, in his acts of kindness, and C, praying with the congregation. In all three of these areas, he, he had a redemption, he had a vindication. He was found innocent. One commentator notes that these are the three pillars on which the world rests, Torah study, prayer, and acts of kindness. Another commentator notes that these three elements correspond to the three faculties, of thought, speech, and action. Torah study is properly done verbally in speech. Acts of kindness are performed with the faculty of action. And prayer is a service of the heart, the faculty of thought. Okay, so here we have the basic idea that the verse that the author ever was saying as he's being released, you have, you he redeemed my soul with peace. That verse is connected with these three areas, Torah, study, charity, and prayer. And the exact three areas where there were accusations made against the Yalta Rebbe. And the author is saying that I have redemption in these three areas. I am vindicated. I have peace. So continues the author Rebbe on that, continues the Rebbe on that theme. Middle of page four. The slanderous accusation, accusations made against the Yalta Rebbe War about Torah study, acts of kindness, charity, and communal prayer. That's exactly what the three allegations were. The three accusations. One accusation was that the new Hasidic movement would lead to a disregard for Torah study. Right? That's what we spoke about. It will lead, it will chip away at the value of Torah study. A second accusation was that the charity money that the Alta Rebbe sent to the land of Israel for the support of Torah scholars, for widows and orphans, was a contribution to the Russian Tsar's military enemies. And the third accusation was about the extra length of Hasidic prayer, the institution of a new prayer book, and the opening of separate synagogues. These changes to prayer were presented in the allegations as proof that this was a new religious sect which was illegal in Russia at the time. Let's continue on page 5. The verse states that victory is won through many advisors. Right? That's what the verse says. You want to win? Make sure you have many advisors. So the Rebbe read, learned something very interesting from that. Of course, the first choice is to seek advice from a friend. 
<laughs> but some commentators add that when a person is in a situation where they don't have any friends available to ask for advice, they should seek the advice of an enemy from an enemy and do the opposite. <laughs> right? Either you have a friend to tell you what to do, or you ask an enemy and just do the opposite. <laughs> it's a very good strategy. If you want to know what Israel should do, ask anybody who's anti-Israel what Israel shouldn't do. Whatever they say, that's exactly what Israel should do. It's, it's, it's a certain way to gain clarity. They're screaming ceasefire. Oh, that's very good advice. What not to do? <laughs> it's very good advice of exactly what you should right do the exact opposite. Okay. Along the same lines, all of the allegations made by the enemies of the Hasidic movement were the opposite of reality. Everything that they were saying in the Hasidic movement is doing bad, that's actually exactly what the Hasidic movement was doing good. And this itself gave clarity to the Alter Rebbe, we are the greatest gifts and the greatest contributions of the Hasidic movement. And the Rebbe is going to explain, and at least I'll tell you at least briefly, how in all three of these areas, in Torah study, in charity, and in prayer, were the areas of the greatest successes of the Alter Rebbe, of the Hasidic movement. Until today, that's what we see. And the Alter Rebbe, in a certain way, was able to gain clarity from the fact that these were the specific areas that there were accusations made against him, saying that he's doing it bad. Oh, the enemy says that? That's exactly what he's doing right. And that's exactly where we see the greatest power of the Hasidic movement. And we'll go through this rather quickly, all right? Because we don't have that much time. We'll do it quickly. Page six. We'll start with Torah study. Says the Rebbe, first, regarding the allegations that the Hasidic movement disregards Torah study, the teachings of Hasidut, and especially of the Chabad school, explain the great value of Torah, raising it to a far higher level than it was considered previously. So, Hasidus actually lifts up the value of Torah study to a whole new level. And the rabbi is going to say what those two are. The first was humility. This change regarding Torah study was expressed on two levels. Firstly, as great of a scholar as a person may be, the Torah is always greater, longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Therefore, all of one's Torah achievements pale into insignificance compared to all the Torah that remains to be learned. Even the greatest scholar must study as if he has, has only just begun. This is one of the big principles of Hasidus. The humility when you study Torah. The worst thing is to feel arrogance and to feel that you mastered the Torah. There has to always be such a deep humility. And the more you study, the more humility you have. How much you don't know. And however much you studied, you're only just beginning and the awe and respect and overwhelming awe that a Jew should have in the face of Torah study. That is something which did not exist before Hasidus. One of the, one of the areas where we saw a certain, uh, a, a, a certain negative, uh, ch you know, chipping away at the ethos of Judaism that was happening before the, before the Hasidic revolution was tremendous arrogance in the Jewish world. The more somebody knew or the more somebody thought they knew, they just became terribly arrogant. And uh, which is totally not the way of Torah study. Hasidus really introduced the idea of uh, a humility in the face of studying God's Torah. 
and to raise up the study of Torah to that very high level where there's always uh, an awesome respect and a humility even when you study and even when you know a lot of it. That was the first thing where we see Hasidus succeeded in raising the way Jews look at Torah. The second idea is that Hasidus puts a lot of emphasis on practical law. No matter how much you study, no matter how lofty you study, it has to come back down to earth. It has to be practical. Judaism can't remain cerebral. Judaism can't remain meditative and inspiring. Ah, it has to hit the pavement. And that's something which Hasidus promotes a lot. And the author of himself was very much invested in also codifying Jewish law, which was a very special thing of the author. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that in a moment. Let's read Practical Law, bottom of page 6. Secondly, Hasidut places a special emphasis on, quote, study is great because it leads to action. The greatness of study. One of the first works of the Alter Rebbe, before he assumed the leadership of Chabad, and as a preparation for it, was focused on reaching the practical legal conclusions from Torah study. God's word, this is halacha. The Talmud relates that David and Jonathan were great scholars, but when Doeg, we're not going to get into the whole history of this, but when Doeg told King Saul about David's scholarly abilities, he wasn't moved, saying my son Jonathan is just as good. But when Doeg, page 7, but when Doeg told Saul that God is with him, the law is always decided in accordance with his opinion, Saul became upset and jealous because that is something that even he did not merit. Okay, let's not get into the whole story about King Saul, but the idea is there's tremendous value in practical legal application of law. One of the first projects that the Alter Rebbe did, one of the first projects that was given to him by his teacher, was to create a new edition of the Code of Jewish Law that would share what Jewish law is concisely, clearly, without any clutter, and with the reasoning, which was never done before in Jewish history. Before, I'll actually show it to you. I have it right over here. I'll show you very quickly. Before the Alter Rebbe, if you want to know what Jewish law is, you would have, this is, this is the original version of the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, this is actually a little bit of an earlier version. Okay, but in any case, this was the code of Jewish law before the Alter Rebbe. So if you were a Jew who lived 300 years ago and you want to know what Jewish law is, you have this book. The only problem is if you open up this book, you see what you got over here? You've got the main text over here, and then you've got all these commentary and debates and different opinions and different reasonings. And what this would do is that knowing what the law is would become very, very difficult. Because you have a massive book with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine different commentaries and nine different opinions on one page. And what that meant was that <laughs> if you want to know what Jewish law is, it becomes something which is very difficult to do. The Alter Rebbe was the very first one in Jewish history who rewrote the Code of Jewish Law, in a way that looks like this. Straight text. The footnotes are, are a later edition. The author didn't even write the footnotes. Everything is organized. Everything is fleshed out. The final ruling is here. There's no guesswork. There's no scholarly studying that has to be done. He, he allowed Jews to have a text that is simple, straightforward, tells you what the law is, with um with no with no runaround and you'll just see it's just beautiful straightforward and that is the great thing that the author of it did that he made a new shulchan aruch 
which is not new. It's, of course, basically a aggregate, an aggregate of all the tremendous Torah study of all the previous generations and to bring it down in an orderly, accessible way. This was actually the very first project the Altebra worked on in his life. Even before the Tanya, which is the revelation of the Hasidic teachings, was the code of Jewish law. Let's go to page 8. Okay, let's go to page 8. Bottom of page 8, source 5. And this is what the sons of the Alter Rebbe, Rebbe Shneir Zaman, wrote in the first edition, in the introduction to the first edition of the Alter Rebbe's Code of Jewish Law. They wrote like this. Bottom of page 8. From heaven it was agreed that the Magad of Mezrich search among his students to find one upon whom God's spirit rests, to study and rule clearly in Jewish law. Okay, I forgot to keep going over here. With the reasoning behind the laws, and to write it according to the order of the code of Jewish law, focusing on the everyday matters of the most frequent application, which take precedence over other which take precedence over other mitzvot and to arrange all the laws from the original code and the recent sages in clear, understandable language with the relevant reasoning. The Magadim message was given this charter from heaven to find one of his students who could do this. Take all of the Torah's laws, which are, there's debates, there's, 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 uh, there's, there's um, lots of discussion, lots of deliberations, make it organized, make it accessible, easy, straightforward language, give the, give the reasoning so that people can understand why the law is like this. And let's continue. The Magid chose our Holy Father, who was filled with knowledge of the Talmud and later authorities. The Magid told him, There is no one as wise as you to descend to the depths of Jewish law and carry out this holy task of distilling the laws and their rationale from the authoritative texts with conclusive rulings. So this was, this was the greatness of the Alter Rebbe, that he actually lifted up the honor of Torah study and the accessibility of Torah study. And now every single Jew, even one who's not a great scholar, can find Jewish law and can try to live their life more in line with Jewish law. So the Rebbe continues. Let's read from the Rebbe here. The Shulchan Aruch Harav. That's how the Alter Rebbe's Shulchan Aruch is called. Shulchan Aruch Harav. The Rabbi's Shulchan Aruch. Has a novel feature. It also includes the rationale behind the halachic decisions. It's not just telling you law, it's explaining to you why the law is like this. This is the main difference between the Shulchan Aruch HaRav and the original Shulchan Aruch, which I showed you before, written by Rabbi Joseph Cairo. Rabbi Cairo, who lived a few hundred years before the Alter Rabbi, only gives the final halachic conclusions, leaving all the sources and all the explanations. In his earlier work, the Beit Yosef, written as a commentary on the Torah, which is the book I just showed you before. The Alter Rebbe, by contrast, includes brief explanations of the laws as explained in the works forward. Thus, the truth was precisely the opposite of what was alleged to the Tsar that the Alter Rebbe's path would undermine Torah study. Okay, so we see the enemies say that he's chipping away at Torah study. It was exactly the opposite. And now let's talk about charity and prayer as well. Page 10. Charity and the Sultan, says the Alter Rebbe, the accusations regarding charity were similarly the opposite of reality. 
The Alter Rebbe sent various forms of support to the Jews in the land of Israel in order to enable them to study Torah and observe mitzvot. The goal of all of this was to bring Mashiach closer. Giving charity is the greatest mitzvah, and it hastens the coming of Mashiach, at which point the land of Israel would be freed from Turkish rule. <laughs> the Alter Rebbe wasn't looking to support the Ottoman, uh, um, the Ottoman Empire's occupation of the land of Israel. We want to do more mitzvahs like that. We could all go back to Israel and not be under foreign uh, foreign rulership. He wasn't supporting the sultan. The obvious. He was sending money to Israel to actually bring Mashiach. <laughs> the, so that's for the sultan to not rule over uh, the land of Israel anymore. But the prosecutor alleged the exact opposite, that the money was intended to assist the sultan. And finally, about prayer, lengthy prayer, the allegations made against prayer were also absurd. The claim was that due to the change of prayer books and unique customs and separate synagogues, this may be something other than true prayer to the true God. The reality was exactly the opposite. If you ask anyone, whether they are from Lithuania, Polish, whether they are Lithuanian, Polish, or Galician background, as to who prays at greater length, the answer will be that if you see a person praying for an extra half an hour, it is a clear indication that he is associated with Hasidus and the Hasidic movement. Lengthy prayer and more investment of prayer is actually in the opposite. So the author Rebbe says, so what the Rebbe says is that, number one, knowing what the allegations were, give you clarity of what the greatest achievements of the Alter Rebbe was. And number two, it also gave guidance to the Alter Rebbe of where he should put even more focus. And what the Rebbe says is, in all three of these areas, the Alter Rebbe, upon his release, double down even more. More Torah study, more strength in Torah study, more charity, and more prayer. And that's what we're going to conclude with over here. Page 11. The Rebbe says like this. Why was the slander against the Alter Rebbe, specifically about Torah, Torah prayer, and acts of charity? Lies are unsustainable. So there must have been at least a kernel of truth in the accusations. It's interesting. No lie works if it's a total falsehood. Every lie has to have a little bit of falsehood in order, in order for it to survive. Right? That's a good lie. A good lie is a little bit of truth with a lot of lie. Full lies don't work. A little bit of truth and then some lie mixed into it. That's a lie that, uh, that is able to start uh, getting some traction. So the Rebbe says the real truth was, if they were able to accuse the Yalta Rebbe of these three things, the Alter Rebbe took that as a message that in a certain way, they're right. We're not doing enough. <laughs> We're not doing enough to strengthen Torah study. We're not doing enough for charity to help those in Israel. We're not doing enough to strengthen prayer. <laughs> if they were even able to find some form of accusation, that means maybe they're right. Maybe we should be doing even more. And that's what the Rebbe continues. The Yalta Rebbe certainly strongly focused on Torah study, prayer, and acts of charity. Before. But the olive only releases its oil when it's crushed. Sometimes only when you're crushed does the real goodness start coming out. And in this case, the Rebbe Rashab stated that all of the Alter Rebbe's activities increased after his release from prison. After this period of difficulty, the Alter Rebbe only uh, invests himself even stronger into all three of these areas. And indeed, 
from the accusations, in fact, came even greater growth in all three of these areas. Says the Rebbe, of course, all three elements were present before the imprisonment, meaning it's not that he only started focusing on these three areas after the imprisonment. He was already doing all these even before. We mentioned earlier, says the Rebbe, that the Alter Rebbe began writing his Shulchan Aruch during the lifetime of the Magad of Mezrich, years earlier. And he even completed some sections then. His charitable activities had also begun earlier. An example of this can be found in a story that occurred even before he traveled to Mezrich. We'll read the story in a moment. When the Alter was a very young man, how much he had a passion for giving charity. The Alter Rebbe received a dowry from his father-in-law and then used it for charity, helping other Jews make business investments that he determined would be beneficial for them. We also know the level on which the Alter Rebbe conducted his prayers before assuming leadership. So here's a story. We'll read it quickly. Such a beautiful little story of how much the Alter Rebbe you know, sacrificed for charity, even when he was a young man. And this is from the biography of the Alter Rebbe based on the teachings of the Chabad Rebbe's, top of page 12, source 6. This is the story. Already at age 14, the Alter Rebbe had gained recognition in the region for his genius. Rabbi Yehuda Leib Segal, one of the wealthy people in Vitebsk, took him as a husband for his daughter, Sterna. One of the conditions that the Alter Rebbe had before getting married was that the planned dowry of 5,000 coins would be his immediately to use for whatever he wanted. During their first year of marriage with his wife's agreement, he gave away all the money to families who wanted to make a living by farming. He helped them buy farmland and livestock with that money. That money helped pay for many new agricultural settlements near Vitebsk. The Alter Rebbe visited them often, encouraging them to commit time to daily Torah study and telling them stories from our sages and the Torah. So this is an, uh, an amazing young man here, newlywed. He's, you know, back then they got married, you know, like 18, 19, he's already married. But yeah, he, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a wonder child. He's a child prodigy. So he gets married to the daughter of a very wealthy man, asks for a massive dowry, and doesn't you know, go build for himself a nice new house and a nice kitchen. He's building up Jewish communities, helping Jews get their feet on the ground, give them business. You know, this is who we're talking about. So what the Alter Rebbe says, the Alter Rebbe was already involved in all these areas, Torah study, charity, prayer, well before he was arrested. But this gave him an even more of a push, like squeezing the aisle that brings out the choicest oils. And the Rebbe concludes like this, middle of page 12. The main thing is that the discussion should have practical consequences. All this, we should bring it home for ourselves. While, of course, none of us can compare to the Alter Rebbe, but we are given the power to study Torah, both the revealed and the inner dimensions, with diligence, and most importantly, with excitement, with great excitement. The same is true regarding prayer and charitable acts. Let's go to the last, I want to skip this paragraph. Go to the last paragraph. This is the lesson for everyone, including our generation. In fact, it is all the more relevant to our generation as we need to welcome a sheikh soon, as the Rebbe Rayat, the previous Rebbe, famously proclaimed. We must increase in our Torah study and charitable acts, especially charity in the land of Israel and prayer with the community. And we must invest ourselves in this like we do in our business. We have to really invest ourselves. And dear friends, that is this week's Torah Deep Dive. A little bit of the history, 
of what were the key allegations, what was behind uh, the celebration and the, tri- the tribulations of the new year for Hasidus, and also how th- what that teaches us about the great accomplishments of the Hasidic movement, and how it also gives us direction in understanding what we need to focus on. The three main pillars, a deeper commitment to Torah study, a deeper commitment to giving charity, especially charity that's connected with the land of Israel, and more prayer, especially prayer with the community. That's the and dear friends, with that we conclude. Thank you all so much for joining. And